want to give you guys a little bit of a reminder, sort of a, um, I don't know what I'm saying, what it's called. Anyway, I want to basically remind you guys of a principle that's really, really, really key, okay? What happens many times when we hear things that we think we're familiar with, we have a tendency to shut our brains down a little bit. We think we already know. Now, as we've been teaching through the different tribes, there has been a consistency in the fact that they're all pictures of failure in a lot of areas. So we look at this and people go, yeah, yeah, okay, Pastor, I know another tribe that disappeared, another tribe that failed, another tribe that, that fell into self. And though this is true, and this is going to be a repetitive aspect of this, there are specific components of each tribe that will fit us individually. So I need us to not think that we already know. Because that's the problem. Knowledge puffeth up, the Bible says. What happens when we have knowledge? We think that we don't have anything that we need to learn. But I can promise you, I've studied this stuff intensively, and I learn every single week. So please have ears to hear as we get into it. Okay, so to give us a re, uh, recap of where we were last week, the message was called, Whose Servant Are You? And what we were doing is looking at the tribe of Issachar. Interestingly, as we studied them and as we looked into them, what we saw was a people who were oriented on serving God. We saw that they started outright, that their attitude was about supporting and doing what God said. They were more concerned with pleasing the Lord than they were with pleasing men. And it was a wonderful, wonderful example. Then we saw, as it came to David becoming the anointed king over all of Israel, we saw that Issachar again showed their fervent support of God and wanting to accomplish God's will. But then we also saw that they were actually servants of God's people as they actually provided for their fellow Israelites. And we saw this as we looked at the dynamics of their service and the front part of their existence. Boy, it became challenging to us. You know, what is, what's our service like? How are we serving the Lord? Are we more concerned with what God thinks? Or are we more concerned with what man thinks? Are we more focused on what it is that our life is going to do to impact the lives of others? Or are we more, impact, are we more focused on how life impacts us? Unfortunately, we are selfish by nature. All of us probably can agree to that. If we took a picture of all of us together, who would be the first person you would look for? Hello, right? So there's the struggle between the flesh and the spirit. And this is what we saw in Issachar's story, this recurring uh, principle. Because what happened eventually was this is where their story took sort of a negative turn. What we saw was the scripture said that as we looked at Jacob's prophecy over them, though they had had a track record of success, there reached a point in time where, guess what? Their focus shifted. And we saw that they said, the Bible says that they, and they saw that rest was good, right? How many think rest is good? Man! Today after church, everybody's freaking take a nap, right? Just lay it down, just you know, check the inside of your eyelids. So rest is good, and what happens is, unfortunately, it can become a pastime for some people. They live their whole lives seeking rest, right? They live for vacation, they're working for the weekend, that's the life that they live. And what we find when we look at Issachar, that sort of becomes the, the, their story. And what we see is they dissolve, just like all these other tribes that dissolved in the, as part of the Assyrian, uh, um, uh, what do you call it? Uh, uh, whatever, they were taken captive by the Assyrians, and they dissolved into existence. Their history, their history changed. And what we saw was a cautionary tale for us not to get too consumed with the pleasures of life because it's very easy for that to happen to us. We have a tendency, unfortunately, to be very concerned with how life affects us instead of how God wants to use our life to affect the world around us, which is ultimately the reason why we're here on earth. So we saw that cautionary tale, and what we'll do today is we're going to transition over to another tribe. We're going to look at the, the Asherites, Joshua chapter 19, verses 24 through 31. And what we'll see as we look into their story is not only their inheritance, what it is that they're going to receive, but also combining that with what we know of their ultimate end, we're going to get a picture of kind of what's revealed to us is, in reality, actually a cycle of, of restoration, but it's going to be in an unusual way, and it's actually going to show really the amazing love of God and the, uh, the, uh, the, the, the conscious heart he has for humanity. But it'll be an unusual path that we'll get there. So this morning's message is entitled, Happy Am I, the Tribe of Asher. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your love for us. Thank you, Lord, for the gift of the Word of God. And Lord, you know that I have uh, I've studied. I've come to you, Lord, seeking your will, your, your word, your wisdom. Join us. I guess that's my phone talk. That's my watch. Sorry. Uh, you should shush your mouth. Um, <laughs> Lord, thank you for the gift of the opportunity we have just to hear from you. And Lord, I know that you have, uh, as I said, spoken to me. Lord, my desire is that you would speak through me. Lord, help me to get my humanity out of the way 
and the, whatever Siri, let her not interfere with anything. God, I pray that you would uh, guide and direct this message, and Lord, use everything that's said, everything that's done for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to put her inside here. There we go. All right, Joshua chapter 19, verses 24 through 31. And again, these are going to be some just some logistics. These are locations, and I'm going to butcher these names as I do every single week, so bear with me. It says, And the fifth lot came out for the tribe of the children of Asher according to their families, and their border was Helkath and Hali and Beten and Atshaf and Alamelech and Emad and Mishil, Mishil and reached to Carmel westward into I'm going to skip that one. And turneth toward the sunrising of Beth Dagon, and reacheth to Zebulun and the valley of Jephthah-el, toward the north side of Bethamech and Nael, and goeth out to Kabul uh, on the left hand, and Hebron, and Hebrehab, and, and Hamon, and Cana, and unto great Zidon. And then the coast turneth to Ramah, and to the strong city Tyr. And the coast turneth to Hosah, and the outgoings thereof are of, at the sea from the coast to Achsib, uh, Uma, also Aphek, Rehob, Twenty and two cities with their villages. This is the inheritance of the tribe of the children of Asher, according to their families, these cities with their villages. And again, when we read these kind of verses, so many times we have a tendency to just skim over them. But what we have to realize is the fact that God is always teaching. There's always an element that needs to be understood by us. And so by giving us this, uh, this property, this value of where they are going to be, we're going to see some things about Asher that we'll be able to learn from their location, but also as we dig through Scripture to get a little bit better picture of their story. So first of all, let's look at Asher. Asher was Jacob's eighth son. Now his mother... If you look, we're going to have you, I'm going to pop up a family tree in just a moment. His mother was a woman named Leah, or Leah's maidservant, a woman named Zilpah. And Zilpah, um, unfortunately, as we go through this story, we're going to get into an additional layer of dysfunction that existed. As we've looked at this family, as we've looked at Jacob, we've looked at the dynamics between the husbands and the, well, the, husband and the wives, we've seen a lot of dysfunction taking place. But there's a whole other layer of dysfunction that we're going to look at today. So let's look at our uh, family tree, throw it up there. So we know there are 12 sons in total. Uh, so Leah has six of those sons. Um, we also know that Bilhah, Bilhah is Rachel's uh, servant. She has two sons. Then Zilpah, who's Leah's servant, has two sons, and then we see Rachel has two of those sons. But what's interesting is how it is that, that Zilpah and Bilhah end up in the mix. And it is all rooted in, unfortunately, jealousy and competition that existed between Rachel and Leah. Remember, Leah was envious of Rachel. Remember, Rachel had Jacob's heart. And so Leah was like, man, oh man, I want to have, Ra- I want to have Jacob's heart. And so what happened is she actually referenced herself as being hated. And her desire, her deepest desire, was to receive the love of her husband. But then we shift over to Rachel's perspective, okay? So here we have Rachel. Instead of looking at the circumstance and saying, I have my husband's love, this is amazing, this is wonderful, she's looking and thinking about what she does not have. So she's going, oh my goodness, Leah is able to have children, I'm barren, so guess what? I want kids. And boy, she is, instead of being thankful for what she has, she is absolutely over or beside herself on what she does not have. Does that relate to anybody in this world? People have a tendency to, man, we look at what we don't have and we spend so much time desiring what we don't have instead of taking the time to look at what it is we have been given. A thankful heart is an important part of walking with Christ. If you don't have a thankful heart, you're always going to be dissatisfied. There's always going to be an aspect of your life that you'll be frustrated by. And so we see here Rachel's attitude and we look in Genesis chapter 30 verses 1 through 13. And here we're going to lay out this dysfunctional relationship. It says, And when Rachel saw that she bare Jacob no children... Rachel envied her sister and said unto Jacob, Give me children, or else I die. Okay? Irrational statements like that, irrational behavior, and familial instability, guess where they're rooted? Ingratitude. Ingratitude. She cannot value what she has. Now, notice this. Jacob's going to respond. Jacob's job as the leader in his family should say, No, no, honey, let me help you to realize what it is you do have. Help me, help me orient the way that you're thinking. You're seeing this the wrong way. But instead of that, he has a, a, a fleshly response. And Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel. And he said, Am I in God's stead? Who hath withheld from thee the fruit of the womb? He says, Hey, look, you're blaming me? Is this on me? Instead of helping her, he actually makes it worse by becoming defensive and they'll just stir in the pot. Verse 3, And she said, Behold, my maid Bilhah, go in unto her, and she shall bear upon my knee that I may also have children 
by her. She's saying, hey, listen, Bilhah will be my stand-in. What you'll notice is she's offering Bilhah like she's property. She's not giving her a choice. She's just saying, hey, this is yours. So do we recognize this kind of decision-making? Have we seen it before in Scripture? Remember Abraham and Sarah, right? There was a circumstance. Instead of waiting on God, Sarah was like, I got an idea. I got a solution. Here's Hagar. This is the way that I'm going to have the child that God promised. There Ishmael, and the Bible says that his, name, his hand will be against man for the rest of his existence. Destructive, right? But we so finally, we see they, they trusted. God eventually came through and made their provision. But we see that same kind of mindset. And what we find is the fact that so many times, historically, even maybe in our own lives, there are decisions that were made that were bad decisions. And instead of learning from that bad decision, what we do is we then do it again. And if we don't learn from history, man, we are bound to repeat it. And unfortunately, this is the story of our world. Why is the world in the state that it is today? Because guess what? We haven't learned from the past. Why is Israel going through what it's going through? Because guess what? They have not learned from the past. All the circumstances that were taking place, man, these are all biblical. And God says, listen, there is going to be a result. That there's sowing and reaping. It's a principle that exists in the world. And we're going to get into it a little bit deeper. Then it goes a little bit further. Notice this. And he says, uh, and she gave. So it says, verse 4 says, and she gave. Like property, she gave him Bilhah and her handmaid to wife, and Jacob went in unto her, and Bilhah conceived and bare Jacob a son. And Rachel said, God hath judged me, and hath also heard my voice, and hath given me a son. Therefore she called, they're so creative with their names, Dan, which means judge. And it says in Bilhah, Rachel's maid conceived again and bare Jacob a second son. And Rachel said, with great wrestlings, listen, have I wrestled with my sister. Okay, this is all about competition. I, and I have prevailed. And she called his name, Naphtali, which means wrestling. Rachel sees her actions as justified. Because recognize, in her mind, it takes away from Leah's blessing. And it's this competitiveness that is driving Rachel. Can I promise you, it is unhealthy and it is ungodly. But sadly, this destructive mindset is alive and well today. The mindset is, the means justify the ends. I, I'll do whatever I need to do to get my way. And what will happen is people, Christian folks, will fall prey to worldly things like lying, backstabbing, undercutting in order to get ahead in different circumstances and situations instead of waiting on the Lord. And so many times, God's simply just putting us in a situation to say, who will you trust? Will you take hold of the situation or will you wait on me? And so many times, because of our emotions, we take the reins, and we decide that we're going to do things our way. In some way, like she said, man, God has heard my, oh, man, this is all, it's all blessed of God, it's blessed of God, it's blessed of God. But I can promise you, these are not ungodly choices that they're making. And we know that long term, there's going to be a circumstance. There'll be an outcome that is a negative one. As we look through Scripture, we saw that principle of sowing and reaping. Whatever is sown is eventually going to be reaped. If I plant corn today, I'm not going to get corn tomorrow. But down the road, guess what? Eventually, corn's going to come out of the ground. And I'm not going to get back one kernel of corn. I'm going to get back thousands of kernels. So if I'm sowing good, well, hot diggity dog, down the road, there's some good coming. The Bible says, be not weary in well-doing, for in due season you shall reap. If you faint not, do the right thing. But again, it warns us also that if we're, caref- we're not careful and we make emotional decisions that are driven by our flesh, there's a negative consequence to come. If we allow the Lord to lead, if we allow God to bless and guide our steps, then we're allowing the Spirit to lead. Galatians chapter 6, verse 8 says this, For he that soweth to his flesh shall, promise word, shall of the flesh reap corruption. Okay? So that choice that you make in the flesh that's emotional, it is going to have a negative consequence. But he that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. So one decision has a short-term destructive impact in the world and in the life of that person. But he's saying, hey, listen, if you'll make spiritual decisions, not only is it going to be positive for you here, but ultimately... You're laying up treasures in heaven, right? That's why he tells us, don't set your affection on things on the earth, but set your affection on things above, right? God's saying, hey, listen, work, work for that. So when making decisions in our lives, we have to ask ourselves, listen, am I doing or, or making the choice or seeking what will fulfill my desire, or am I ultimately looking for what will fulfill God's desire for me, right? Many times because we get so short-sighted and we get our eyes set on things that we desire, that we'll do whatever it takes in order to hit it. I'm going to be successful. I'm going to be wealthy. I'm going to have this. I'm going to have that. And man, oh man, that becomes our all-consuming focus. And you have Christians that are saying they're serving God, but in reality, they are seeking the things of the world with all their might 
so that they can say, look what I have achieved. And say of saying, God, you know what? Let me be faithful to serve you. And Lord, you give me what it is you think that I need, right? So again, there's a destructive, unfortunately, a long-term destructive impact. There is no indication that Rachel or Jacob sought God's guidance on this. They just did what they did. And what happens, unfortunately, they made a choice. And then we see that same mindset, okay? Because remember, this is a competition between two sisters. Look what Leah does. Verse 9. When Leah saw that she had left bearing, she took Zilpah, her maid, and gave her, just like property, to Jacob to wife. And Zilpah, Leah's maid, bare Jacob a son. And Leah said, A troop cometh. And she called his name Gad, which means troop. And Zilpah, Leah's maid, bare Jacob a second son. And Leah said, Happy am I for the daughters. Look, the daughters will call me blessed. Look, people are going to, this is what they think of me. And she called his name Asher, which means happy, happy. So just look at this selfish behavior. This is all not driven. This is not for the goodness of Jacob. This is not for the goodness of God. This is not about accomplishing God's will. This is two sisters in a battle of will and ego trying to selfishly fulfill what it is that they want. It's all about how they feel, how it impacts, how it impacts them. And what's amazing about God is the fact that he can take a situation this jacked up and guess what? He can still use it for his glory. Praise the Lord, because guess what? The same is true for us. We may not be doing that specifically, but how many of us make stupid decisions? Every day. Oh, my goodness gracious. Some of us may be more than others, but ultimately what happens, we make bad choices. And you know what God does? He works through our bad choices and still accomplishes His will. Does that remind us of a verse in Romans chapter number 8? Right? Well, let's read the two verses before, and we're going to read verses Romans 8, 26 through 28. Likewise... The Spirit also helpeth our infirmities. Now, we could also include in the infirmities our stupidity, okay? Just throw that in there. Our infirmities, my bad choices. For we know not what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Many times God helps us. to He intercedes on our behalf with God. In verse 27, And he that searcheth the hearts knoweth what is the mind of the Spirit, because he maketh intercession for the saints according to the will of God. He's saying, listen, God's intervening for us to try to get things over to where they need to be so God can use our choices to do something great in our life. So positive and negative. We used the example before of the GPS, right? GPS, the global positioning system. For us, it's the God positioning system. And when you make a bad choice, God does not go. That's it. You're on your own. The GPS does not throw you aside and say, good luck on your trip. No, it recalculate. Recalculate. Recalculate, And every dumb move we make in life, guess what God does? Recalculate. 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 And he works it back. And I make a left, and I'm supposed to make a right? Well, well just don't out here make a U-turn. Work your way down this way. Another bad turn. All right, come on, come on, come on. It doesn't give up on you. We were talking about that yesterday. We met a, on our camping trip. We were trying to go someplace. And man, oh man, we got jacked up. And that thing, <laughs> he was recalculating like crazy. Luckily, he didn't throw us off. But we finally got there. But the point is this. God works through our bad choices. And we see this example here with them. Notice this, verse 28. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. So God says, listen, no matter how bad of a choice it is, I can still use that bad choice. How many of us can look back in our own story of how we came to Christ? And man, we can see some terrible choices. We can see some really bad steps. We can see some directions that, man, we were going so far the wrong way. And yet God eventually redirected us and got us back to a point in time where we finally realized that we were lost. And we said, you know what? Lord, I love you. And Lord, I need you. And man, in that moment, you know what? He wasn't like, you know what? I've been waiting on you forever and you sorry, blah, blah, blah. No, he goes, you know what? Come on. Come on. I've been waiting on this. I've been waiting on this. Get on in here. Get some of this. Boom. Man, a love relationship is established. It's just awesome. So God works through our stupidity. Praise God. All right. Let me get a sip of water. And that's just what God does with Bilhah and Zilpah, which were born out of servitude, whose mothers were slaves, and yet these kids would be blessed to become a part of a royal lineage. 
these children of Asher, and this is their story, who born into a situation whose parents were not in an in a upper class, but we don't see any slight against them. When the, when the, when the, when the uh, blessings are given, when Jacob talks them and his, gives to his children, what you'll find is it's even across the board. And what you find when we listen to Asher's blessing is that some of those blessings are kind of like veiled curses, actually. But man, Asher's is a straight-up blessing. Listen to Genesis 49, 20. Out of Asher, his bread shall be fat, and he shall yield royal dainties. This is a prophecy of abundance. This is a prophecy of success. Now, when we consider the inheritance that they received, and you look at your map on your sheet, look at where that thing sits. Look at that property. There we go. Look at this. This is the Mediterranean Sea. These lands here. This is rich and fertile. This is an amazing portion of Israel. And what we know as we go through and we learn a little bit more about their story is the fact that Moses spoke of them as well, and he gave a prophecy of what would, be, what would be said or what would happen with the tribe of Asher in Deuteronomy chapter 33, verses 24 and 25. He says, And out of Asher, he said, Let Asher be blessed with children. Let him be accepted, acceptable to his brethren, and let him dip his foot in oil. What you need to know is oil is a representation of wealth and abundance. So he's to have his grounding. He's supposed to be grounded in his success. Verse 25, thy shoes shall be iron and brass, and as thy day, so shall thy strength shall thy strength be. And Israelite history shows us that the tribe of Asher, that land that they had, had massive olive orchards. Now, the olive oil trade would have allowed them to become very, very successful. Plus, they're right on the Mesopotamian Sea, which is all the trade routes. So they were really in an amazing, amazing location. So we saw that God gave them an abundant, abundant inheritance. He blessed them beyond measure. And all the Lord required of them. He says, look, I'm going to give you more than you deserve. And all I'm going to ask of you in return is that you drive out the wickedness within the land that I give you. That's the only thing I ask. You just do what I ask you to do, and everything will go great. So that was the request that was made to drive out wickedness. Now, when we remember what Canaan represents, right? what does Canaan represent for us? For it's a spiritual, a real a real location, a physical location, there's a war being raged in that land right now. And what we find is here, there's a physical story, but for us, there's also a spiritual, spiritual story. What was their physical story? This was to be a place where they would dwell in fellowship with God. Remember, okay, God's tabernacle, the tabernacle, which tabernacle translates dwelling place. So it's the home. This would be the place where God would fellowship on the earth. And so what happened when they enter into Canaan, guess what? Those Levites carried the, the, the tabernacle. They brought the, the Ark of the Covenant, and they brought it into the Promised Land. So what happens is this place was supposed to be the place where, the, where God's people would dwell in fellowship with God. And the whole thing was, he said, listen, in order for this thing to be right, in order for it to be proper, you need to get all the wickedness out of here. Because if we're going to have proper fellowship, they can't have the influence of this destructive force around you, because guess what? They'll get your hearts, and they'll turn you away from me. And I want us to have a love relationship that's beautiful, one that's, that's pure, one that's, one that's strong. And we see the mandate from God about what it was they were to do in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 1. Actually, all of Deuteronomy 7, but I'm just going to read you the first two verses. Deuteronomy 7, verses 1 and 2 says this, When the Lord thy God shall bring thee into the land, whither thou goest to possess it, and hath cast out many nations before thee, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, the Pizzavites, the seven nations greater and mightier than thou, verse 2, and when the Lord thy God shall deliver them before thee, listen, thou shalt smite them and utterly destroy them, and thou shalt make no covenant with them, no sure mercy unto them. If you were to go to Israel right now, the Gaza Strip, you know what? That's a covenant made with people that were supposed to be driven out. And the warning was that if you make covenants with them, guess what they will do? They'll be your destruction. And what they're dealing with right now is reaping and sowing. And so we see this. What God's saying is you're supposed to sanctify the land. You're supposed to set it apart for me. You're supposed to make this a, a holy nation. That's the whole goal. Because recognize that they were surrounded by evil. And you know what? Israel to this day, surrounded by enemies. Surrounded by enemies. And so we look at this and we go, okay, that place was supposed to be unlike any other part of the planet. 
And what's so amazing is there's the, the focal point of history from this day forward is always going to be around the city of Jerusalem. Right now, everything that's going on, man, the hatred that exists in the world, the reason why they want to destroy the Jews is because they want that land. Because you know why? When the book of Revelation, when the Lord finally comes back, all, everything is going to be centered right around that little location right there. And the war that's to come, that will end all wars, literally, is going to be over that piece of land. So it's not unusual, the circumstances that we're seeing right now. It's all just set up for the biblical story that God prophesied about thousands and thousands and thousands of years ago. And so we see the mandate. And guess what? You and I, we have a mandate as well. For them, it was a physical location. For you and I, it's a spiritual one. It's our walk with God. Right? God wants to walk with us. What's the purpose of the relationship with Christ? We get saved so we can have fellowship with God. We can dwell with Him while we're on the earth. And so here comes the picture. And so though our battle isn't against a physical location to to drive wickedness out, but it's for us individually in our lives. Because guess what? Our lives are fraught with wickedness. There are all kinds of places and strongholds in our lives of things that we need to drive out. And what God's saying is, listen, I want fellowship with you. But when you're walking in the flesh, guess what? We don't have fellowship. Oh, but when you walk in the Spirit, man, we're like this. We're like this. So then every day, what are we supposed to be doing? Looking for those little hidden wickedness, those little things that we make justifications for, those little covenants that we've made in our life with things that should not be in our lives. So we're supposed to be sanctifying ourselves, setting ourselves apart. We look in John 10.10. Jesus describes for us what our promised land is. In John 10.10, it says, The thief cometh not but for to steal and to kill and destroy. This is what Satan offers. But he says this, I am come that they might have life, okay? So it's a life, but what kind of life? That it, that, and that it might, and they might have it more abundantly. So they would have a life, but it wouldn't just be a life, it would be an abundant life. It is a spiritual existence, the walking and fellowship with the Lord. And inside of that spiritual promised land, guess what? There is love, there is joy, there is peace. And so we think about the physical one. They had a land flowing with milk and honey, and God's going, oh, no, no, no. Yours isn't going to be physical, but this is going to be spiritual milk and honey. This is going to be sweet. This is going to be fellowship. This is going to be love. This is going to be nourishment for your souls. Because if we walk in fellowship and you let me love on you like I want to love on you, and you get the garbage out of your life, man, you're going to thrive like you cannot even possibly imagine. You're going to shine. You're going to make a difference in the darkness, and your life will have value and worth that you have no idea. Because we're all sold a bill of goods and it's just about survival and it's a load of garbage. It's not about survival. God saved us and left us on earth to reach the world. If it was just about a relationship with Him that was ultra close and it was just about you and I because we're selfish, God would save us and kill us on the spot. Because there, our life, we are no longer impacted by sin. There I live in 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 a glorified form. And that's not an issue. So if that was the goal, then what people get, because we're selfish by nature, is we think, it's all about me, it's all about me, it's all about me. And yes, God does want us to have a sanctified life, but not just for us. It's so that our life will make a difference in the lives of the people around us. Because when people are hopeless and they see hope in someone's life, they want what you have. When they're consumed in darkness and they see light, and you're in the same darkness and yet you're shining, they're like, how is it possible? Someone's dealing with death. And they have a testimony of life. How amazing is that? Because most people can't even perceive it. That's why it's called the peace of God that passeth all understanding. And so here we have this opportunity to live this spiritual life that God's given us on earth. But we have to work and focus on the fact that, listen, God's given us a mandate. It's to drive out the wickedness in our lives. And so how are we doing in our own personal walk with God and driving out wickedness? Are we dealing with sin as God instructed us? without mercy? Are we making no covenants with it? Or are we making provisions for our flesh? Because we have a tendency to say, you know what? I deserve. And we get caught up in the selfish, well, the means justify the ends. And we get caught up in the same selfish pattern that Asher was born out of, and it carries into our lives. Because it's our nature to do so. But God says, no, 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 I've given you a mandate. Drive the evil out of your life. God's intention for us is that we would be sanctified from the world, that we would be separate 
from the world, that we would be a peculiar people, that people would see us and go, they don't fit in. Well, praise God. I hope we don't fit in. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 through 11 says this, but you're a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation, you hear that? A peculiar people that you should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, which in time past were not a people. We were all just lost in the world, but are now the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, oh, but now have obtained mercy. Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain, this is it, here it goes, Abstain from fleshly lusts, which war against the soul. You've been given a gift. You have an opportunity to have a relationship with Christ. But man, do not fall prey. Abstain from fleshly lusts. Drive that wickedness out of your life because guess what? It wars against your soul. God is calling us to walk in the Spirit. For you see, when we do, we experience the abundant life that Jesus intends for us to experience. That as Christians, listen, we would dwell with Him in holiness. And we would experience God's desire for us, the same desire He had for Israel, which is that they would be holy. That's the whole goal. And so what happens, so many times people are seeking after happiness. And happiness is an unattainable goal. You chase it and chase it and chase it, and happiness comes from happenstance. I have good day, bad day. It's all what happens. But you know what holiness does? Holiness is an amazing byproduct, and it's happiness. And you know what's cool? A consistency of happiness is what they call joy. And we're not wavering up and down with the cares of the world. This was God's desire for them. But when we look at the tribe of Asher and we track their story and we look at how they handled what they were given. Remember, they were trusted with 22 different cities, locations that they were supposed to be in charge of. Deuteronomy 7.2, remember this was the mandate. Drive them out, right? Thou shalt smite them and utterly destroy them. Thou shalt make no covenant with them, nor show mercy unto them. And yet this is what the tribe of Asher chose to do. Judges chapter 1, verses 31 through 32. This was their choice. Neither did Asher drive out the inhabitants of Acho, nor of the inhabitants of Zidon, nor of Alahad, nor of Atzib, nor of Helbah, nor of Aphek, nor of Rahab. But the Asherites dwelt among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land, for they did not drive them out. So the 22 cities that they were entrusted with, seven of those cities, they said, you know what? We're good. We'll just make a deal. We'll live amongst these people. It doesn't say that they could not drive them out. Notice it says they did not drive them out. They made a conscious choice to say this is what we will do. We will dwell amongst the Canaanites in the land that God entrusted us. And he told us, you make it holy. Don't make it a covenant. Drive them out. Drive them out. Drive them out. Nah, we're not going to do that. We're going to do it this way. What if, if we were to apply that to us? So nearly one-third of what they were given, they said, hey, we're not going to do it. They allowed wickedness in over one-third of what they were entrusted with. What if in your life, one-third of your, of your time was devoted to sin? What if one and third of your thoughts, right, were consumed by focusing on unrighteousness? What if, what if, what if our heart, one third of our heart was committed to wickedness? And we think about that and you go, man, what would our walk with God be like? One third of our day consumed by wickedness. Because we've made justifications, little things we watch, things we listen to, the thoughts we have, the reactions we have in traffic, all this stuff. And if we added up the time in the day, how many hours of our 24 hours have we committed to wickedness? Right? We know the long-term impact on these guys. But if we think about our relationship, what would it be like with God? I can promise you this. It would be distant. It would be broken. And it would be fruitless. For you see, listen, in just the same way that God rewards faithfulness, God also punishes unfaithfulness. And if, listen, if we want to claim to choose, we want to, we, want to, we want to claim our faith, we want to claim Christian, and we're living a life that is literally like that's talking about, one third of our life is consumed by this wickedness, and we want to pretend that we're a Christian, you know what happens? We end up creating a facade. We end up creating an appearance of a Christian, a persona that we live when we come to church or when we're around people that we know, and we want to have a certain reputation. 
And I want you to compare it to... So this, this cross right here, when, when we planted this church, a friend of mine had an oak tree that fell in his yard from a, from, a, from a lightning strike. And he said, hey man, I got this awesome wood. I said, well dude, let's do something with it. So we went and we planed it all down. And this is from that, that tree. It's solid wood, I can promise you, because I made it. But then there's also this up here. I think this came from Big Lots. I'm not sure. <laughs> this table, this table looks like it's real. If you look at it on the top, there's grain all over it, grain around the sides. I promise you, if we cut this table in half, you think it's hardwood? No. Nope. It's full of particle board. It would splinter and fly all over the place. It's all the garbage that was gathered, all the wood that was no good, and they ground it up into a fine powder, they added in some glue, and they created this pasted thing, and then they put what's called a veneer, a fake surface. And when everyone in the world looks at that, you know what they see? Wooden table. Looks good. And when they see this, they go, oh, wooden cross, they're the same. But they're not. One's a lie. One's a facade. And see, God sees through us. God could cut us right in half, and He goes, I see who you are. I see your heart. I see how you spend your time. I see what the things you focus on. I see what your desires are. They're not for me. You're one of these. You're a veneer. You're a facade. And so God's calling us to be real. Because I can promise you, when we stand before Him, that thin veneer, it will not mask who is really standing there. So God's calling us to be real. Who's, and this is, uh, for you see, a true child of God whose life is infiltrated with sin lives in a spiritual turmoil. If you are living this, I can promise you are unhappy. I can promise you that you struggle every single day. I can promise you that you don't rest well. I can promise you that your prayer life is a mess. Because there's something called godly sorrow. And it's the feeling, it's the separation between us and God. It's a broken fellowship with God. Not that we lose our salvation, but our fellowship is broken because of the sin in our lives. And what happens? Because God loves us, He doesn't give up on us. There's never a point in time where He goes, you know what, that's it, I'm done. I just throw you away. No, He loves us. And what does He do? He chastens us. He chastens us. Chapter, Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5-11 through 11 says this. And it says, And ye have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children. My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of Him. So when God allows adversity to come into our life to get our attention, instead of being angry at God and going, why would you let this happen to me? What if we were like, whoa. I can evaluate my life right now and realize, you know what, God's trying to redirect me a little bit. I need to have a different perspective. Verse 6, For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. He brings punishment. If ye endure chastening, God dealeth dealeth with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the Father chasteneth not? If God loves you, guess what? He's going to redirect you. That's what we do for our children. But if you be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, he says everybody, everybody messes up, everybody deals with God, straighten them out. He says, but if you don't, Here's your answer. Then ye are bastards and not sons. Then you're religious, but you're lost. You don't have a relationship with God. You've never become a son of God. Furthermore, we have had fathers of our flesh, which, which corrected us, and we gave them reverence. Shall we not much rather be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? For they verily for a few days chastened us after their own pleasure. You're going to listen to me, boy. You're going you're to honor me, boy. But listen, that's the way our earthly father, but this is how God works. But He for our profit. God does everything He does for our good. That we might be partakers of His, hello, holiness. That we would experience the promised land. Verse 11. Now no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous. It stinks, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. Once God brings that chastening into our life and we allow God to shape us and to shape us through it, guess what? We look more holy. We experience more of that fellowship. We get restored back to God. Remember that God's heart is always, always a heart of restoration. And here's Asher's story. They become a cautionary tale of the long-term impact of disobedience. For you see, because we know the ultimate end of Asher as a tribe, we know that they did not get right. We know that they did not get right. So when the Assyrians took them captive, they, along with nine other tribes, would vanish from history. That's what happens to the Asherites. It appears that their hearts were more committed to their abundance than they were to God. For you see, abundance or wealth causes two responses. When we're blessed with physical or material wealth, it can bring one of two responses. Either humble gratitude. God, you have provided for me. 
thank you, thank you, thank you, or arrogant entitlement. Look what I've got. I deserve it. I've worked hard. And you know what? I deserve more. I deserve more. One draws people to God. The other draws people to the world. We all know this to be true because when life is really going well, what happens a tendency, unfortunately, for all of us as we tend to start to worship and be thankful for the blessing and lose sight of the blesser. Just happens. We start to look at what we've received and forget about who it is that provided it, provided it for us. And this is the danger. Romans chapter 1, verses 21 through 25, and I promise I'm almost done. says this, Because that when they knew God, they glorified Him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like a corruptible man and a bird and four-footed beasts and creeping things. They start to take God from where he was as, this, as the preeminence, and they start to bring him down and make him more earthly. And they start to say, you know what? I mean, God's provided some, yeah, but you know what? I've done my part too. And suddenly what happens? God's preeminence starts to become reduced. Verse 24 says, Wherefore God also gave them up to uncleanness, through the lusts of their own hearts. They begin to believe their own garbage, to dishonor their own bodies between themselves. And listen to verse 25 who changed the truth of, the, of God into a lie. What is happening in our world right now? This right here has been told that it's not truth anymore. It's been twisted and turned, and people say, no, 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 it's my truth. I established the truth based upon my circumstances, based upon my reality. No, it has nothing to do with your reality. It is the truth is always the truth. He says this, who changed the truth of, a lie, a truth of God into a lie and worshiped and served, listen, the creature more than the Creator. So the shift went off of worshiping God and it became worshiping the thing or the individual. How many of us are more or are, 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 are guilty of worshiping the creature, ourselves, more than the Creator? Remember when we were in 2 Timothy last week? We looked at 2 Timothy 3, 4. And a verse in that verse, it says, men, this is talking about the end times. It says they'll be lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God. Do you notice here in that Romans verse, it doesn't say that they don't worship the Creator. It just says that, that's, what does it say? It says they served, and cre- they served the creature more than the Creator. So they still serve God, they just serve themselves more. And so these guys, it says they, they don't, it's not that they don't love God, they just love pleasure more. And so this is the subtle thing. People can convince themselves, I serve God. I love God. I'm worshiping God. And that might be true at at a certain percentage. But listen, the percentage of how much they're loving themselves and serving themselves is much, is much higher. Who do we love more, ourselves or God? Our level of abundance or our level of obedience will reveal the answer to that question. The Asherites were committed to themselves, and because of that, they as a tribe would be eradicated from history. They simply vanished. And they're not heard of for literally about six centuries until there's a woman by the name of Anna. And this is where our story takes a really cool turn. There's a woman named Anna who's wholly consecrated unto God. And what she, where she shows up is when Jesus is going to be circumcised. And they bring the Messiah to Jerusalem. And there was Simeon that we studied before. Remember Simeon was there? Well, Anna's also there at just the right moment. Notice this in Luke chapter 2, verses 36 38. It says, And there was, one, there was one Anna, a prophetess, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. Asher is the Greek rendering of the word Asher. She was of a great age and had lived with an husband seven years from her virginity. This would have put her in her early 20s. And it says in verse 37, and she was a widow of about four score and four years. That's 84 years. So she's been a widow. She has been alone. Now, if you ever notice in Scripture, it talks about being there for the, for, the, for, the, for the widows and for the fatherless because they were the poorest of the poor. They had nothing. So here she's been a, she's been a widow in abject poverty for 84 years. No children, no nothing. And you'll, you'll notice you're not going to see any woe is me in her. No. What does she do? Verse continues. Which departed not from the temple, but served God with fasting and prayers night and day. 
Here's an Asherite who has every reason to complain because she didn't get what was right in life. Her husband died when she was a young woman and she's been by herself for all this time. She could say, why me, God? Why me? And she says, no. I'm going to make you my all in all. You'll be my provision. And I'm going to go every day and I'm going to worship you and I'm going to thank God for what you've worked in my life and you've given me this life for a purpose. And I'm going to be faithful. And I'm going to pray and I'm going to fast day and night. An example of Asherite faithfulness, which makes an understand, if you figure out and calculate it, she's over 100 years old. It's estimated she's about 105. And she's still making her way to the temple every single day, faithfully serving the Lord. And because of her faithfulness, and this is the key, because she's there every day, when Jesus shows up, guess who just happens to be there because of her faithfulness? Anna knows the Scripture. Man, she knows the Messiah is coming. And God's going to give her a chance to meet him face to face. Verse 38. And she coming in that instant. That's it. In that instant. Gave thanks likewise unto the Lord. And spake of him. Notice this. To all them that looked for redemption in Jerusalem. Redemption. Redemption for the world. And in this instant, redemption for the tribe of Asher. If you see Adam's... Anna's steadfast faithfulness to the Lord would forever change the story of her people from one of selfishness and one of disobedience and destruction to one of selfless service, dedication, and redemption. Anna from the tribe of Asher gets to meet the Savior of the world because of her faithfulness. And instead of being focused on how it impacted her, if you'll notice, you know what it said? To all that are seeking redemption. Her message isn't, look what I've received. She's saying, Israel, look what we have received. Instead of selfishly considering its personal impact on her life, she selflessly proclaims it to the world. A true servant of God who was seeking His will. You see, Anna didn't allow her people's past failures to determine her, faithlessness, her faithfulness. She chose to create her own story. An Asherite that would faithfully honor God from the beginning to the end. And even though she had been alone for over 80 years, guess what? Spiritually, she was never alone. She was walking in fellowship with God, experiencing a spiritual promised land while she was in the midst of the physical one. And this poor elderly woman, how could someone like that go through all of that? And so what's ha- it's so cool is the way, and, I, and this is the reason why I chose the title, Happy Am I, is how in the world could someone like her say, Happy Am I, having basically lost everything? Because guess what? She figured out that it was not about her. It was all about God. Amen. And through that love relationship she had with him, boy, no matter what God, what had been taken away from her, she would be able to say, Happy Am I. I've seen the Messiah. And it's all about, it's about perspective. How do we see our life? Do we see the things that we've missed out on? Or the things that we've suffered? Or do we realize the fact that God allowed each thing in our life for a purpose to help us to have a vision to see the truth, to recognize the Savior? The two men that are getting baptized today, both religious. Bob was Methodist, raised his entire life. Entire life. Trusted, it's prayed the sinner's prayer, he said over 10,000 times. And on Wednesday night, sitting in my office, he came to the realization that he was religious and had a religious understanding of God, but had never surrendered to Christ. And after all those years, how old are you now? 57. 57. Man, you're an old man. No, I'm just kidding. I'm the same age. Um, <laughs> after all those years of being religious and knowing God, finally came to the realization that the Savior came for him. And he got saved on Wednesday night. Tim, back here in the back, Tim was raised Catholic his entire life, devoted in the church. And about six months ago, and he, they live in Ireland, uh, Lisa and, and Tim. But man, praise God, he and I were able to do discipleship together. And the very first part of discipleship is talking about what salvation is. And I said, Tim, why don't you tell me what salvation is? And he gave me an answer that was not right. And I was like, well, that's, that's not the right answer. <laughs> Let's talk about what it really is. And after that short conversation, he said, I don't have that. And he bowed his head on FaceTime 
and prayed and asked Jesus to come into his heart. And so they're getting baptized today as a public profession of their faith. But what's so beautiful is the realization that, man, no matter what life brings, no matter how hard it may be, I can say, happy am I if I walk with Christ. If you're here today and you do not have a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, you need it more than you can possibly imagine because I can tell you, times are going to get darker and harder than they've ever been. And the world is going to be more and more scary as we start to see the reality of, of, of end times coming into play. And I can promise you, man, our time grows short. And if you're on this earth and you've heard the gospel, which if you've been in this church more than one time, you've heard the gospel. And if the rapture takes place and we leave this earth and you are left here by yourself, you have heard the gospel and guess what? You will be damned. Because God's going to give you a chance during the age of grace to receive His gift. But when you deny it and you say, I don't want your gift, and the age of grace comes to an end, you're done. You're done. If you're watching this online, you're listening to it recorded, and you've never really received Christ, I'm not blowing smoke. I'm telling you, time is growing short. And if we get raptured out of here today, you're done. Because to deny the truth, the gospel message, it's a gift. The Bible says the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. A gift. But it can be offered to you, but if you do not receive it, it is not yours. So if you're here today and you've never received Christ, you have an opportunity today. I'm going to bow our heads, uh, our heads in prayer. I'm going to pray. These men are going to get changed for baptism. And then we're going to continue with the service. Bow our heads in prayer. Let's, let's pray and ask God to help us. Lord, we thank you for today. We thank you for the message. We thank you for the truth of the Word of God. We thank you for the power of salvation and your love for this broken world. And I do pray for those that are in this room today and they say, you know what, Lord, I'm, uh, Pastor, I'm struggling right now. I've got some issues in my heart, in my life. I've got some sin that I've allowed uh, things to creep into my walk, and I don't have fellowship with God like I need it. Pray for me to have the strength to surrender, to submit, to give these things to God and walk in fellowship with the Lord. And there may be here today this one that may says, you know, I don't, I don't have a relationship with God. Maybe I know about God, I believe in God, but I've never really surrendered. Maybe you're like what Bob said on Wednesday when he said, I've prayed a bunch of times but it's never changed anything. Oh, but what I explained to him is just a matter of surrendering to God's love. If you're here today and you feel the draw of God on your heart and you know that time is rolling short and you want to receive the gift of God, can I tell you that he loves you right where you are? He loves you in your brokenness. He loves you in your failure. He loves you in your sin. He loves you right where you are and he wants to restore you. He died on the cross for you individually and he's calling out to your heart. So their heads bowed and eyes closed. If you've never received Christ, this is no ceremony, there's no religion in this. This is just a relationship with God. He's trying to restore you back to him. So if you want to receive him, he's waiting on you. Their heads bowed and eyes closed. If you want to receive Christ, repeat after me, speaking to God in your heart and mind. Dear Lord, I know that I'm a sinner and I am so sorry for my sin. I believe and understand now that you died for me on the cross, that you love me in spite of myself. I'm asking you right now, in the best way I know how, to come into my life, to forgive me of my sins, and to give me a home in heaven. Lord, thank you for saving me. I will see you face to face in heaven one day. Thank you for being my Savior. Thank you for redeeming my life. Use me now for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. It's